You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this month's edition of Ocean Currents, a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. We talk about natural history, conservation, research, exploration, and ways for us land-based folks to learn more and get involved. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of three amazing and unique marine sanctuaries off the central California coast here off of Point Reyes. So let's get to it. A few months back, my guest today appeared in Point Race Station as a, a guest at a showing of a film that really touched me deeply. Ricky Ott is a marine biologist and author and activist, and she talked about her experience living in Alaska and surviving the long legacy of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989. She not only survived it, but led her impacted town out of its most trying times. Ricky is featured in the film called Black Wave that brings attention to what really happened during these dark days. Ricky was a commercial salmon fisherman, and while living in the devastation of the oil spill on many levels, she chose to do something about it. And that she did. Ott retired from fishing and founded three nonprofit organizations to deal with the lingering harm from the spill. During the litigation, she kept Exxon on their toes as they were keenly aware of the fight she and others would put up. She has written a few books, and her books on the spill are Sound Truth, Corporate Myths, and Not One Drop, Betrayal and Courage in the Wake of the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill. So I'm so pleased today to welcome Ricky Ott. And Ricky, you are live on the air. Thank we, you. Uh, we're on. Thanks for joining us. You're live on the air on KWMR. And we just did a little introduction, which you probably didn't hear, talking a little bit about your experience with the Exxon Valdez spill and, and being an author, writing some incredible books about your experiences. So thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. I don't know of many marine scientists that went into commercial fishing. How did you find yourself in Cordova, Alaska to start? Oh, I think it's all sort of this uh, um, random choices that maybe aren't so random. And um, after graduating from the University of Washington, um, it was I added it up. It was like 13 years of, quote, higher education. And I thought, you know, a career will wait for one summer. I just want to take one summer off. I'm going to go to Alaska. I've always wanted to go to Alaska and just, just have some fun. And I got a job on a commercial fishing boat, which might not sound like fun, but it sounded like fun to a marine biologist. So um, I totally fell in love with the lifestyle and with the area. I crewed in Prince William Sound and the Copper River Delta, a um, little community of Cordova, just bustling in a high, you know, beehive of activity. And I thought, this is a great place. I'm going to stay. And what's a marine biologist to do? So... Um, I decided, heck, um, I'm going to buy into the commercial um, fishing, and and that's what I did. And that summer became, well, let's see, it's going on 25 years now. Reading your book, Not One Drop, I couldn't put it down for not one minute practically. It was a very gripping account of your experiences and describing the landscape and the marine ecosystem prior to the impact of the spill was just rejuvenating, hearing of such life. And the spill came in 1989, and you have been involved since then completely, wholeheartedly in how dealing with oil and companies and, and corporations, too. What drove you to recount all of these experiences and memories in your books, recounting from your time with the Exxon Valdez? Well, there's a, there's a couple interesting things here. One is that it, that spill didn't just affect us as individuals. Um, it affected us as a collective community. And what the people wanted was they wanted, we wanted our story to be told. Um, and and there's, I think there's a need for this when a collective is traumatized like that. Um, we're reaching out to other humans, like, this is what happened to us. Um, and 
we we talked with a lot of media, different people, and media just never really captured our story. Um, and of course, Cordova became a case study for a disaster trauma. It's now the longest running study in history on what happens when a community is smashed like this and how it can rebuild. So it doesn't necessarily have to be Cordova and an oil spill. Um, Our story is now pretty important. There's some good lessons for other communities in, in the rest of America. So we really wanted our story told. And I thought, well, heck, you know, I I tried once with Sound Truth, and that I interviewed over 60 people for that book, but that book became more of a um, the biological impacts to people's health and the environment from oil, and it didn't really tell the town's story. So mm. people were like, Ricky, you got to try again. You didn't really get it. <laughs> so I thought, darn it all. So um, um, I wrote Not One Drop, um, and I will say that it was the first manuscript was completely different. And uh, Chelsea Green is the one that said, look, this is supposed to be a book about emotion and trauma. Where's the emotion? (laughs) So I rewrote it, framed it on my relationship with my girlfriend, Lyndon, and her family, who she had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time of the oil spill. Um, And they were were my godchildren. And pretty much it's, it's what happened to us. There's not a scene in there that actually didn't happen. The conversation happened. I mean, it happened around campfires. It happened around making Christmas cookies. Um, it happened just as a matter of going snowshoeing or, or hiking with each other. This oil spill trauma just, it hung on for 20 years as we worked our way through um, the legal system. Um, and I was in the position of, the kids were very interested in this growing up. And I mean, how do you explain this to a four-year-old and a six-year-old or a you know, right. a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. So it kind of became um, me trying to explain to them, them getting very interested, especially as they got older. Um, can you come to my school and explain this? You know, that kind of thing. So um, it, it's, it really is a 20-year snapshot of, of our lives. And the interesting thing is, is that when I finished that book, that was actually a catharsis for me. It actually healed my own oil spill trauma. So that for the first time, really, um, I was able to leave and leave the, not leave the town physically, but I felt like a letting go of the oil spill trauma. And people in town, um, the spill children read the book first, and they said, you, th- now I understand what happened to my family. Mm. And the town pretty much said, okay, Ricky, this time you did it. So it kind of is our story. Um even if it's just Lyndon and I. Well, I definitely captured that. I think attaching to a family and people and emotions and really it drew me in. And I'm sharing this book with, with colleagues because it, it, was, it was gripping to experience what you were experiencing then. Can you describe Cordova, Alaska? How big is this town? And maybe describe a little bit about um, the background of the community and the thriving economy that was there prior to 1989. Cordova, Alaska is uh, 2,500 people, and half the town is directly engaged in commercial fishing. So, uh, I mean, directly going out to sea and making a living catching fish. Uh, Salmon, herring, halibut, um, cod. I mean, pretty much pink salmon and herring were the breadbasket, were the big uh, money uh, fish for Cordova. Um, The other half of the town, then, um, is supporting the, the fishing industry. So pretty much everybody in town benefits when there's a good season or, uh, uh, you know, if we have a bad season, we all tighten up our belts. I mean, we're not buying food at the restaurant. We're not, you know, um, so good season, everybody celebrates. Bad season, everybody suffers. Um, there's um, a good portion of the town, 18% when I got there in 1985, um, who are the original um, inhabitants, the EAC people, EAC people. And they have a subsistence lifestyle. So they're very, their culture is very um, connected to the environment. They celebrate, they harvest, they share wild food. Um, in total, the town, according to um, Fish and Wildlife Service, or uh, Fish and Game, um, the state agency, 
we we collectively eat about 400 pounds of sea well wild foods. So counting seafood, counting moose, deer, birds, um, per household per year, 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very much connected, uh, whether we're native or not, to emotionally, spiritually. Our well-being is connected to the well-being of of our environment, of Prince William Sound and the Copper River Delta. It's a very what attracted me was um, that everybody's a doer. Um, everybody who fishes is their own business person, so there's it, it's not very much um, hierarchical uh, business structure like in in most other communities. I mean, everybody is their own business person who fishes. So you're making decisions. It, it's a very very self motivated, self directed people. Um, we're isolated. We don't have a road in. Um, that gives us sort of like an island mentality. We have to take care of each other. So it's a very close-knit community. We're all fishing in the summer. It's dangerous. Um, people die all the time. Um, and um, it, it, it's a hard life, but it's it's very much alive. You're very much alive. And that was that was what I liked about um, that community was was how... Everybody was connected to the environment, to each other, um, and really, it's just a constant celebration of just being, and of living, life. Living quality yeah. life. Now, you came to Cordova. You had a, your background as marine to- toxicology, and coming to this vibrant community, um, you queued in immediately to oil. When did the oil pipeline get built in Alaska, and were there any standards for safety that needed to be adhered to. It seems like this is a big point, launching off point of the pipeline and, and where we've come today based on a lot of your work. But when was it built and you immediately got involved in um, the safety standards around that? The, uh, that is actually a good part of um, part one. I, I cover about 20 years of history in part one of Not One Drop, which is all re- relative to the question you're asking, what about the pipeline? And um, oil was discovered in 1968 in Prudhoe Bay on the North Slope, and the oil men immediately looked south. Um, the Port Valdez was the uh, closest ice-free port, and it was 800 miles south across, you know, three or four ocean, I mean, mountain ranges and a few hundred rivers, and like, big deal, let's just build a pipeline south. So um that took a couple acts of Congress to sort out whose land it was and make the authorizing legislation. And the community of Cordova pretty much became the sole opposition point um, because the fishermen were worried about a big oil spill in their fishing grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, the fishermen's lawsuit was nullified by congressional action that enabled the Trans-Alaska Pipeline to be built in 19. 19- uh, 73, that legislation went through. Um, so the pipeline was built over a series of years, and the first oil was shipped in, um, I think it was 1978. Um, and <laughs> along the way, there were a few, um, oh, there was the great congressional hearings over the x-ray falsifications. The, the pipeline definitely, uh, I mean, there what we know that there were was there a bunch of promises that the oil companies made. They promised to do state-of-the-art, um, build state-of-the-art pipeline. They promised to have um, state-of-the-art vessel traffic control systems. They promised to have double-hull tankers to reduce risk of a spill in Prince William Sound. They promised to have a ballast water treatment facility to treat the uh, uh, polluted water, that seawater that came up in tankers so it wouldn't just be dumped back into Prince William Sound. And of all those promises, the only one that actually uh, was put into law was the ballast water treatment system, which then uh, immediately when I began working on this issue, um, it actually wasn't until 1987 because it took us two years to figure out um, actually how to fish. We came pretty close to dying (laughs) several times. Um, But anyway, so 1987 I I started saying, okay, I have to repay our good good bounty or good luck from the sea, what what do I have to repay? And I was like, well, I have an education, so I guess I can put that to use. 
Um, so when I, the fishermen were very worried that there was chronic air and water pollution from the, um, the tanker terminal. And it turns out uh, it took us like four or five years to prove that, but that's when I started working on these issues. And indeed, um, the, the, I mean, it's like having a giant, giant gas station in your backyard, and uh, that's the pipeline loading onto the oil tankers. Um, and this was around the peak, so it was about 2.1 or so uh, billion barrels a day. It was a lot of oil. Um, and uh, they weren't doing the practices that they said. So, mm-hmm. in fact, they were uh, dumping oil both into the water and um, not incinerating it, so it was actually going into the air as well. Mm-hmm. So that was how I cut my teeth, and that was before the oil spill. For those of you just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Ricky Ott. She's a marine biologist, she's an author, an activist, and we're just discussing the Exxon Valdez oil spill and the long legacy that it's left and, and what we're learning from it. Getting to the spill, I mean, that was one of the things that impressed me in this book is the spill was one event, but there's all these other events prior of chronic pollution. Describe the scene on March 24th, 1989, what was happening for you, and how how did you get notified about the oil spill and what happened? Oh, well, I had given a talk the night before, March 23rd, to the community of Valdez. It was the mayor's ad hoc committee, and they were looking at the uh, benefits, the pluses and the minuses of having the oil industry in their backyard. What were the things that they needed to be wary about and to be um, aware of, um, and I gave a talk um, literally as the Exxon Valdez was being loaded with oil at the dock in Port Valdez. I teleconferenced from Cordoba, and I was saying, gentlemen, it's not a matter of if, but when there's a big spill, the communities and the fishing people, we will not be adequately compensated because the laws are not um, there to guarantee that we will get be paid for all of our losses. Um, and literally, the Exxon Valdez was pulling out of the dock um, as I went home. I turned off my phone so I could sleep in the next morning. There's this huge pounding on my door at 7 a.m. I, I just, like, leaped out of bed. I'd go rushing downstairs. And I lived in a house that was, at the time, the highest elevation home in Cordova. And you, uh, there was no way to drive up in March. It was just under, you know, the road was snowed in. So it had to be an emergency. Somebody had to hike like that extra half mile to get to me. Mm-hmm. And they opened my door, and there's the acting director of Cordova, the Fisherman's Union, standing on my on my porch. And I'm like, what the heck? And he just says, we've had the big one. And instantly, um, uh, I mean, this is what we all lived in fear of, and here it was. Um, and I remember just this shock, just this huge surge of adrenaline and anger, and, and then it all like whooshed away and I just started thinking what can we do what can we do and that's pretty much the mode that all the fishermen were in for about the first five days or so um, before the fishermen just lined out and realized that the oil industry had absolutely no idea how to clean up a spill this big and uh, we as I said we're a community of doers and we're just not good at sitting around I mean we waited for the oil industry for uh, Exxon and actually all seven companies at first to tell us what to do. No direction. Um, four days in, we had a big planning meeting at midnight, and we just decided we're going for it. And we loaded boats and started defending the hatcheries, um, trying to deflect uh, the oil from uh, from where the salmon were being reared. Um, and meanwhile, I was assigned um, to work on legislation. To use my head and my computer, that's what I was told. (laughs) Well, it seems that Exxon was mostly focused on their appearance to the media during this entire time while everybody in Cordova was looking for a way to defend the the habitats and fisheries and and the coastline. Was there any attempt at any type of prevention, any type of cleanup at all besides what Exxon put in front of the media as what they thought they were attempting to do? Um, pretty much the industry was completely unprepared. Um, they were supposed to, according to their state and federal approved contingency plans, um, be on scene within six hours with uh, boom, uh, you know, response equipment, response personnel, 
and be cleaning up, uh, working to contain the spill. And that just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I mean, the boom that they had was low quality grade. It didn't hold up. Uh, the response barge was buried under snow and offloaded. Um, the dispersants weren't even in the state, really. Um, mm. And there was, it turns out, nothing that really worked on, still to this day, nothing, no dispersant worked on cold, in a cold water environment with North Slope crude. So it's, uh, you know, basically, uh, I think ripe here for a fraud lawsuit brought against the oil industry that they cannot make good on what they promised still to this day. Right. They cannot clean up a spill. So it became pretty much a water on the water response was taken by a big storm and uh, the oil plastered our beaches. Half of the oil that spilled stranded on the beaches of Prince William Sound. Very toxic um, fraction. Um, uh, and it just got buried and it's still toxic and almost intact oil to this day. Almost 21 years later, it's still there. Yeah. Um, so we had an on-the-beach cleanup um, instead of on-the-water, and that was pretty much make it up as you go. The high-pressure hot water wash that I'm sure a lot of um, listeners will remember actually bounced the oil off the rocks into the air, and people breathed it. It made thousands of people sick. I uncovered Exxon's own data showing 6,722 cleanup workers, which is pretty much two of every three people who were out on the beaches. Um, uh, wrote, complained of um, upper respiratory uh, illnesses, which Exxon waved off as Valdez crud. Um, And it turns out, in hindsight, our um, worker safety laws don't really distinguish chemical-induced illnesses. In fact, um, if it's a cold or a flu, um, the filler is exempt from reporting them. So Exxon basically claimed 6,722 cases of colds and flu, didn't report them, and um, a lot of these people are still sick to this day. I mean, it was pretty much a disaster, a second disaster on top right. of the first one. Right. We'll talk a bit about the litigation process in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about the healing of the community. And um, you're Definitely, it sounds like that it's still an impacted community in terms of the ecosystem. And before, it was thriving with salmon and herring. And how is it today, 21 years later, in terms of um, the fisheries and and the habitats, as well as the community morale? Well, there was a delayed ecosystem collapse in 1992 and 1993, and that's because um, our pink salmon and herring spawn on the beaches. So the beaches that were oiled, the young of the year in 1989 either, in the case of herring, completely failed to survive, or in the case of salmon, their reproductive systems were dinged, and there was a huge hit of the eggs and embryos. So it, it took a while for we were waiting for the young fish to grow up and come back as adults, and it, when they didn't come back as adults, we realized, uh-oh, you know, what happened four years ago uh, is impacting us today. The pink salmon slowly came back. The herring have not. And that's a huge problem, um, both for the ecosystem and the community. Um, Herring are a basic forage fish of the ecosystem. Um, So without herring, really, um, the whole ecosystem has to kind of re-equilibrate and find a new center. Um, Scientists are saying they have no idea when herring will recover. Basically, we have 15 of 24 species or habitats that have not fully recovered. So two-thirds, 21 years later, have not. Um, That is to say that the herring fisheries is closed indefinitely. So there are herring fishermen who had like $300,000 permits that can't fish them and probably never will be able to again. And they incurred incredible ballooning debt from the bank not being able to pay off their loans. So this really dragged everybody down. And the Exxon, we, you know, we were going to talk about litigation, I assume, and basically we got paid 10 cents on the dollar um, last, well, in 2008. The good news is that it's over, and everybody just gave this huge sigh of relief, and it's like, okay, let's get on with our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big lesson here is that, and this is in part what I'm doing now, I'm on the road, um, 
And what we learned in Cordova was that the, our laws are not protective of public health, worker health, the environment. Exxon said, we will make you whole. That was Exxon's promise. We learned that Exxon had no intention of making us whole. It, it had every intention of going through the court system and fighting us on every claim that we raised. A lot of our claims were thrown out as non-economic damages, the fishing with our children, the quality of life, the native cultural claims, um, non-economic damages. They're tossed out. Well, that was part of what made us whole was working as a community, as families. Um, so we, we realized that the laws are not set up to hold especially big, wealthy corporations accountable to the people. Um, and in realizing this, we thought something was fundamentally wrong with the legal system, but I want it turns out it's a deeper problem, okay? So let's get I'd like down. to let's get to that bigger problem. I want to talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. We need to take a quick break. So please hold your thoughts there because I, I think I know where you want to go with this and, and I'd like to do that too. So I just need to take a quick station ID break here and we will be back in just a minute with Ricky Ott to continue to discussing the process of uh, claims with the Exxon Valdez. So Ricky, I'm gonna put you on hold real quick. Please stay on the line. Okay. And for those of you tuning in, this is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I'm talking with Ricky Ott, marine biologist, author, and activist, and was very involved with the Exxon Valdez oil spill and is working hard to help uh, us understand the role of corporations in our lives. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit more on the second half. So please stay with us. And Ricky, we're back live on the air. Thanks for holding on for a little bit. And for those tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and we're talking about the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And we're just starting to talk about uh, the, the role of corporations in Exxon and how they got away with what they did in terms of the litigation and the uh, community basically earning 10 cents on the dollar from the disaster. But you say that Exxon, the disaster, is a fundamental threat to U.S. democracy. How does a corporation like Exxon have individual human rights? Okay, I want to, I want to, I do want to back up a little bit because I never answered your question about how the community healed. Oh, yeah. That is a huge window into the problem with corporations. Great. Um, Because what we realized was um, what we valued was more than about money. Um, so as a community, we sat and we did an exercise um, we, that's now called Community Unity um, Exercise, and it's posted on my website, ultimatecivics.org. Um, but basically, it asked, we asked each other three questions. Um, what is it that we value about our community? What do we want our community to look like in 20 years? What action steps would we take to make those changes? And this exercise is really about identifying shared values and kind of creating a common vision and then taking collective action. And as you can imagine, when we lost our fisheries in 92 and 93, I mean, we had no economy. So suddenly we had nothing. So Mm -hmm. it kind of looked like um, America, October 2008, with the economic meltdown. Um, The good news is when you lose everything like that, you're free to create something completely new. I mean, you can try to recreate the old as well, but you can actually, that's a pretty pivotal crossroad, and you can make decisions um, for a different future. And what we decided was, well, as long as we have to rebuild anyway, why don't we try to bring in businesses that match our values, as opposed to just any businesses? And as you can imagine, part of, I mean, people had no income, okay? So people were pretty desperate. Um, and there was a good fraction of the town that wanted to clear-cut logs because we had well, we have a lovely forest on the delta. People wanted to um, strip mine and get the coal. Um, people wanted to build an industrial-scale tourism, a deep-water port, a road, lots of infrastructure. But all this would have gone across 238 salmon spawning streams and rivers. And we said, you know, 
let's think about this. We decided we wanted to rebuild our community as a fishing community, so we wanted to bring in businesses that were compatible with that. So we sat down, and I've done this exercise now in 28 states over the past six years, and I've even done it in fifth grade on up. And when you give people like a minute or two to write, even if they're fifth graders, okay, they come up with a pretty compelling list. And I'll share the list from like um, fifth graders in Santa Barbara, okay? okay? So it's like best friends, my mommy and daddy, my cat, dog, or animals, ocean, mountains, air, rivers, um, peace, uh, surfboard, that was one, um, candy. So... And adults like things like retirement security, a living wage, um, affordable health care, healthy food, not necessarily candy, okay? <laughs> um, but still, the, you know, uh, uh, the environment, um, so clean air, clean water. The point is that we, these things can be grouped. Like I asked the, the little kiddos, um, okay, so you go into the store to buy candy, and it comes with a price tag. Do your best friends have a price tag? You know, and the little kids all giggle. And does your mommy and daddy, you know, no, does your surfboard, oh, yes. But does surfing, does the act of going out and having fun with your friends, does that have a price tag? No. So pretty much adults, kids, everybody gets it, that we can group these values into social values, like peace and health and playing with our friends and visiting with our neighbors um, and environmental health, which are about healthy you know, oil, healthy oil, healthy soil, um, water, air, um, and then economic wealth, the things that, you know, we do need, a home, a job. Um, but in a democracy, these three values, types of values, all count. They, you can't dismiss them as non-economic, you know, that, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. This is a quality of life that matters to humans. So what I'm building up to here is that really what we're talking about, human values versus corporate values, we have a clash of values. Um, what are corporations in business to do? You know, if you look at, so you, in a democracy, human values count. In corporate capitalism, what counts? Making money, right? I mean, right. even the fifth graders get that. So what happened to social wealth? What happened to environmental wealth? Well, our gross domestic product actually consumes social and environmental wealth in order to grow larger the way we currently measure it. So, for example, the Exxon Valdez oil spill was, yes, an environmental disaster from our perspective, but really from the state of Alaska's perspective, it boosted the entire gross domestic product of the state of Alaska for the summer of 1989 because it generated $2.5 billion of economic activity in terms of a cleanup. So literally, when I went to lobby um, as a volunteer for strong oil spill prevention and response measures um, the subsequent three years after the oil spill, I I went into every state legislator's office, and I was told in a number of them, why should I listen to you? My constituents actually went and made money on that spill. So what we have here is, you know, on one hand, we have democracy, human values, and a living economy. When you can grow one form of wealth without decreasing the other two, this is how you get to a sustainable future, and what author David Corton calls a living economy. On the other hand, We have corporate capitalism, corporate values, and a suicide economy, which is about going to, you know, using up the planet. Our gross domestic product, it's not just oil spills. It's war that drives the economy. Um, You know, half of our trade is arms. It's private prisons that drive the economy. It's sick people that drive the economy because sick people have to buy medicine and health care. So we've... I mean, nobody says, I want to be sick. Nobody says, give me war. These are not our human values. So I began to realize that, uh uh-oh, you know, um, how come our values don't count? What's going on? And what I found, alarmingly, was that there are actually um, 
two types of persons. If we go all the way back to the American Revolution, um, and when we, you know, wrote the Declaration of Independence and ultimately the Constitution and Bill of Rights, um, it uses the word person 34 times. And certainly back then, we intended, as a fifth grader uh, said when I said, who are we the people? All these little kids looked at me like I was nuts. And finally one of them says, we, we, you know, real people. Um, but under law, there's actually two types of persons that are recognized. One is the we, the real people, and the other is artificial people, such as corporations and other legal entities that are organized for purposes of doing business. The Constitution and Bill of Rights never, for example, mention the word corporation. Never. But as we got distanced from the sort of the heat and the fervor of the American Revolution, we lost our wariness of these big corporations. And the Supreme Court in 1886 actually conferred uh, the 14th Amendment, which is about equal protection and due process for African-American men. It transferred that over to corporations. So hmm. suddenly now, back in 1886, we, we lost the distinction. Um, uh, corporations are just like people. They're sovereign. They have rights, inalienable rights. Um, they're private. Um, and, and this is, I believe, never what our Constitution intended. It turns out there's two ways to amend the U.S. Constitution. One is the way the people or Congress has done 27 times through what I call the front door, the, legis the, the Congress, basically. And then there's the back door, which is through what Thomas Jefferson called the engine of consolidation, the federal judiciary. And the corporations have, you know, quietly and stealthily gone through the back door, through the federal judiciary, um, time and again, and have usurped a, a, actually a great number of rights, inalienable rights, that were uh, granted through Constitution and Bill of Rights and certainly never intended for fake persons. So how did it get to that point? How did, we, uh, how did the U.S., how did we as citizens miss that historically? Because it, because it wasn't out on the streets. It wasn't civil rights movements. It wasn't... Um, uh, you know, the suffragettes, it wasn't the trade unionists, the populist movement. It wasn't the in-your-face, on-the-street activism. It was through the Supreme Court. Well, who pays attention, really, to what the right. Supreme Court is doing except lawyers? So lawyers have basically changed the rules, the operating rules of our country without we, the people, really being aware that that happened until... Citizen United, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, we have about five minutes left here, and it seems that through the whole process of of your trying to defend the needs of the community and, and deal with Exxon, uh, there were times where you were definitely you were definitely paid attention to by Exxon, according into your book there. But you have now seen this whole bigger picture that we're really fighting against. And what are you now doing to help people realize the situation in terms of the way the government is set up and corporate corporations' rights. What are some of the things and tools that you have developed that can help people to become more aware and get more involved in, in uh, helping to deal with this? Well, what I realized is that as I have been around the country touring, um, and, and actually through the 20 years of the oil spill, is that Really, these big corporations are afraid of organized, educated, involved people. They really are afraid of us. So they try to dumb us down through the television and, you know, kind of brainwashing. And But the thing is, they we, the people, um, really shiver their timbers, so to speak. I mean, they're really afraid of us. So um, on book tour, I kind of went around the country and said, okay, Look, what we need to do is amend the U.S. Constitution. We started our country with people are property, with African Americans and women not ha you know, having the right to vote and all that. 
And that didn't go down very well. And now the <laughs> pendulum has swung to where property is people. And that is not going to go down very well either. Um, both of them are going to need constitutional amendments. Well, we already did the other one, but now we're at the point where we need to affirm that um, only human persons are entitled to constitutional rights. All right, that's a big deal. How do we amend the U.S. Constitution? Well, we certainly don't do it um, just with one or two of us running around the country. So um, I formed um, a little organization to try to figure out how to coalesce all the interesting people and groups that I met across the country as I was touring with Not One Drop. People are, were outraged over loss of their retirement security, of their IRA, loss of their jobs, loss of their homes. They, when I shared what happened in Cordova, we connected the dots. Oh, it's these bigger corporations. Where's the language for amending this Constitution? Let's just get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I want to coalesce all these little groups. With the Citizen United case, the, that case has saved us years, decades, really, of organizing. Um, it, people get it. This came out blatantly that uh, basically it legalized corporate bribery of our elections. And people get it. Eighty percent plus of Americans um, say that corporations are not persons, and this is crazy, and we need to fix it. So it's kind of like um, what's gone on for the past 120 years is now kind of out on the laundry line, right? And everybody can see it. So I'm now part of a larger national movement, which involves, we are the most geographically, ethnically, and racially diverse coalition that has responded to Citizen United. The nation called us the clearest and boldest call to action. Um, cool. And we're across the country. We're all the civil rights groups a lot of the civil, a growing number every day. We're civil rights activists, we're social justice activists, we are democracy activists, um, and others, uh, people who aren't affiliated with any group. We are, have on our website, movetoamend.org, um, tools for people, study group ideas, and Thomas Paine called study groups seedbeds for political activism, ways to amend ordinances and resolutions, um, ways to uh, uh, do candidate surveys so that the politicians that were voting into office, we can ask them to take a stand, saying, no, I don't think corporations should be persons. Um, direct action ideas, rallies, um, uh, street theater you can do. And basically the idea here is to build a community by community, county by county, and ultimately state by state um, reaction, pushback to overrule the court, all the way back to 1886 and say, no, corporations are not persons. And there's a frequently asked questions. I mean, this is about we have to educate ourselves as to what we lost and what we can gain back mm-hmm. by, by taking this action. Um, and uh, David uh, Cobb and I currently are touring. Uh, I'm going to be touring I was out 252 days last year, Wow! fifth grade on up, just um, helping people organize their community to overrule the court. This is kind of like the reaction to the Patriot Act, but on a much bigger scale, mm-hmm. not just write your own local ordinance that says, no, this community believes in civil rights, right? We're gonna, we're, the idea is to get this to the state level and then um, force it back to Congress. If, it gets to, if enough states do this, half a dozen or so would probably be enough to force it to Congress to then um, take, you know, do the amendment process of the Constitution. There's also an initiative process, I think, that we can use through the state. So we have a couple different options here, but the idea is grassroots first. We're not, you know, we the people need to do this from the bottom up. Fantastic. So amend.org. Great. Did you ever think you'd be doing this when you came to Cordova, Alaska the first time? I never thought I'd be doing this, ever. (laughs) I mean, I was interested in science, and here I am, transformed into a democracy activist. But the the bottom line, the commitment that I made on March 24th, 1989, after I flew over that, um, all this oil in our fishing ground, I was just totally traumatized. And I popped into Valdez, and I asked myself, this question just popped into my head. I know enough to make a difference. Do I care enough? 
And I think that's the question that we as American people need to challenge ourselves right now. We cannot get the health care we deserve. We cannot get a safe energy future for our children, not even our grandchildren, our immediate children. Um, in, you know, Wall Street's going to go down again for sure. Um, we need to build resilient communities. Um, we need to ask ourselves, we know enough. We know corporations aren't persons. Do we care enough to devote some time of our lives to fixing this problem? And we've got about a quarter of a million people that are saying yes right now on our website. So let's build the movement. Fantastic. Ricky, thank you so much for that overview. I, I, uh, I've been, looked at your two websites, ultimatecivics.org and move to amend.org. And to let folks know, the tools on there are user-friendly and extremely enlightening. Um, re- just thinking what about the reaction I'm having, I feel like we're all just ground down to the ground in terms of working and getting to work. And we have so many responsibilities. And we really all need to take a slowdown and realize what what part of that is is that in the bigger picture and where are we going in our in our lives as well as our our future lives with our and families why are we working so hard i mean leisure time is our right what happened to it yeah so you know uh we we all don't exist to be consumers or workers i mean that's not our higher purpose Wonderful. so we need to push back here fantastic well if there's anything positive that came out of that tremendous spill. This is an amazing way to get people reunited about what's really pushing down on us and uh, pushing back a little bit. I want to ask you one more question. And um, as far back to more oil gas type of question, but there were so many lessons learned from the disaster. Do you think we are in better shape in terms of response and safety with oil and gas uh, tankers moving around the the planet, coming in, fueling up and going in and out of ports? Do you think we're in better shape now than we were then? Um, I do think we're in better shape because the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 now requires double-hull tankers, so as of 2012. And Exxon is the last one to... Uh, actually, Exxon has more single-hull tankers afloat on the world's ocean than the other top nine oil companies combined. So one can really wonder if Exxon learned anything from this bill. But the point is um, that there's a lot of other steps in the process of getting oil, uh, coal, or gas to our homes or businesses. Um, and, you know, the transportation is just one part. And the trouble is, um, the development phase, the pipeline, um, we we really cannot clean up oil once it does spill. Um, these are empty promises again. Um, and especially now, we, have, we are not really weighing all, we're not adding in all the costs of our oil dependency and our coal dependency, health problems, um, environmental problems. Um, we're just not adding those in. Um, and we've reached peak oil. It's getting harder to get that cheap, easy-to-access stuff. Um, the fracking that we're doing now with, in terms of uh, uh, coal bed methane, these are, the tar sands in Alberta, these are extremely energy-intensive. I mean, basically, you're almost putting as much energy in as you're getting out, mm-hmm. uh, energy in terms of gas. Um, but you're also polluting water tables, wetlands. Um, and using up water, it takes four barrels of water to produce one barrel of bitumen from a, the Alberta tar sands. This is not going to work. We need to transition off fossil fuels. We need to break our dependency on fossil fuels. And I'm committed to that end, um, and I'd like to see it happen um, in my lifetime. Fantastic. Well, Ricky, I want to thank you again for, your number one, your passion and what you bring to this planet. You're doing an amazing job Um, supporting people becoming more aware of our role in government and your environmental work that you've done as well. And thanks again for coming on Ocean Currents today. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for this opportunity. Okay, take care. Okay, bye. We've been talking with Ricky Ott. She is the author of Not One Drop, Betrayal and Courage in the Wake of the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill. 
Um, Ricky is a marine biologist that's turned into a democracy democracy activist, as you've heard. And there's a lot to be learned here and a lot of research to do to learn a little bit more about where we stand and where the government is. So I really encourage you to, to check her out online. She's got a few websites to, to peruse that you can learn a little bit more. Uh, I'll tell those to you again. You can go to rickyott.com, and that's R-A-K-I-O-T-T.com. And also the websites she was referring to earlier about democracy education are ultimatecivics.org and the national movement, movetoamend.org. Very interesting, and I hope you can spend some time looking at those. Here on just to wrap it up here on the Marin Sonoma coast, we have we have not been spared the tremendous impacts of oil. We've had spills and accidents going back in time. In terms of oil exploration and drilling, the 27-year-old Federal Outer Continental Shelf Moratorium um, expired in 2008 and was not renewed by the Bush administration. So currently, our only protections for that type of activity out in federal waters are the National Marine Sanctuaries here in Central California. And closer to shore, the state waters, the three miles out. Beyond that, it's it's wide open right now. So it's a good time for us to get online and check out these um, websites to keep in, keep informed of how to keep this um, at bay. So it's very important. In addition to that, the threat of impact from the ships that come in and out of San Francisco Bay is a daily reminder of this could happen here. And so it's really important to stay aware One thing that you can keep up on is the uh, Coast Guard is um, reevaluating their shipping lines right now, and it's called a port access route study and out of San Francisco, and they're looking at vessel routing procedures and determining if modifications need to be made. So that's one way for you to stay posted. There will be public comment periods in terms of shipping traffic in and out. But I will keep you posted on that, and you can stay in touch we are just about out of time here, but one last announcement is that the Cordell Bank Advisory Council, Sanctuary Advisory Council, has open seats that we are recruiting for um, applications for. We have seats open for maritime activities, fishing, and community at large for Marin and Sonoma. And you can visit cordellbank.noaa.gov to find out more. The application deadline is April 15th. Um, you can also visit cordellbank.noaa.gov for uh, past radio shows here on Ocean Currents. We have a podcast there, and all the shows that I've done in the last few years are up there as well. So I want to say thank you for tuning in today. I'll be back next month. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. Listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.